My name is Dr. Ian Storch. I'm a board-certified gastroenterologist and osteopathic physician, and you are listening to DO or Do Not. If you're interested in joining our team or have suggestions or comments, please contact us at doordonotpodcast.com. Share our link with your friends and like us on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope you enjoy this episode. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. John Gimple. Dr. Gimple is the president and CEO of the National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners. The NBOME is the organization which administers the Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical Licensing Exam, or Comlex USA for short, which ensures that osteopathic physicians have competency and licensure for practice. In today's conversation, Dr. Gimple will speak with us about the history of the board and the examination and the importance of the Comlex for licensure. Further, Dr. Gimble will share his opinion on topics including the importance of the ACGME merger for osteopathic postgraduate education, whether DOs need to take the USMLE specifically if concerning competitive fellowship, and the challenges which face the board specifically with the Level 2 PE during the pandemic. We hope you enjoy this episode. Dr. Gimble, thank you so much for being with us tonight. We really appreciate your time and being on the podcast with us. Thank you, Dr. Storch. Do you mind if I call you John and I'll for the time of the interview? Sounds fine. Thank you. All right, John. Thank you. John, you are the president of the NBOME, which is the reason that we invited you on to hear about the NBOME and to hear the story of your osteopathic physician journey. But can you start by telling us what NBOME stands for and a little bit about the organization and what its role is? Absolutely. The NBOME is the National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners. And it's a nonprofit organization that was founded in 1934 at a time when osteopathic medicine was still really in its first kind of chapter within the United States and of development. And it was a profession that was continuing to evolve at the time, but a profession that felt it had a, an important niche within the overall healthcare spectrum and the overall house of medicine, but that needed to have self-regulation and needed to have the self-regulation processes put in place to assure the public that when osteopathic physicians sought licenses to practice, that they had demonstrated their competencies appropriately by the standards set by the profession. One element of self-regulation is individual assessment, licensure assessment, to get a license to then practice. And for DOs, back starting in and around the 30s and moving on from there, the exam which became known as Comlex USA was the licensure exam put together for DOs. Now, at that time, many states had their own assessments, their own tests, and many states would administer basic science examinations and other tests that uh, any physician needed for licensure. But of course, osteopathic physicians were often excluded from unrestricted licensure in a number of states. And it was by the development of the NBOME that actually came through a number of leaders from the American Osteopathic Association putting together this independent organization. It was from the development of that that osteopathic assessment began and that osteopathic licensure began to really spread throughout the United States providing an opportunity for DOs to practice, get licensed, and 
help to serve the public. So the NBOME has grown since that time to about 200 full-time equivalent staff and a volunteer national faculty of over 700 credentialed individuals. And all of that group is governed by a board of directors of about 22 osteopathic physicians and other leaders. And essentially the mission is to protect the public uh, through assessment by assessing competencies for osteopathic medical practice and for related healthcare professions. So that's great, John. I think the history is so interesting. It sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Comlex was actually developed to allow DOs to have full licensure in the United States. So it was actually allow us to be complete physicians anywhere in the United States. Is that, is that right? In a sense. Uh, it was also, of course, developed to make sure to protect the public. And putting the patients first and protecting the public by making sure that every osteopathic physician has demonstrated minimal competency before they even are allowed to be granted a license by any state was another critical element. We refer to that collectively as self-regulation, a profession kind of setting the standards for who is able to enter the profession. A definition of a profession is that uh, a profession self-regulates. And NBOME is one of the organization that participates in the self-regulation for the profession. So the MDs have the USMLE as their licensure exam, and as DOs, we have the COMLEX. Do both exams cover the same course material? Good question. The COMLEX exam is designed expressly for osteopathic medical practice. So what our national faculty does is it researches and studies what osteopathic physicians do and see in practice, what patient presentations present to osteopathic physicians and what competencies osteopathic physicians need to use. And then they develop a test that samples from that blueprint domain. The USMLE was developed by the National Board of Medical Examiners, and it arose from its precursors back in the early 1990s as a a medical licensing test, essentially for MD practice. International medical graduates, as well as students from MD granting schools, would take that examination both for licensure as an MD to practice medicine, but also for various requirements that MD granting schools had or that the international medical graduates needed to demonstrate for certification in order to apply for residency programs in the United States. So in terms of content, I think it's safe to say that in our study of osteopathic medical practice, there's a lot of overlap in some of the content, like some of the foundational biomedical sciences and some of the other content, certainly some of the clinical presentations that we've studied and that we would sample from. So there certainly is an overlap, but there is an evidence-based design for the Comlex blueprint that completely aligns with the practice of osteopathic medicine. Not an exam, for example, where we tack on some OMT questions, or we assess a couple of stations with osteopathic principles, but that we build the entire blueprint around an evidence-based design for the practice of osteopathic medicine. So John, would you think that it was safe to say, again, I'm a gastroenterologist, so of course I bring everything back to GI. So if I sat for both exams, the GI questions, the basic GI course material would be similar for both exams There's certainly some truth to that statement, but I remember the entire design of Comlex is different than the design of USMLE. So in Comlex, it's a very 
patient care oriented and patient presentation based exam, as well as being competency based. So that is to say that each test question is designed around a patient presentation. And that patient presentation is one that we've studied that would come from osteopathic medical practice. So in your specialty, you're an osteopathic gastroenterologist, correct? Correct. So you see a patient who comes in and, you know, is complaining of, let's say, uh, epigastric pain. I believe you're probably thinking as a DO already that this is a person. This isn't biochemistry. This isn't anatomy. This isn't physiology, but it's a person who has a symptom and the foundational biochemical underpinnings, the foundational anatomical underpinnings, the foundational clinical underpinnings are all going through your mind from the time you see that person walking in the door or that you walk into the exam room or the emergency room to see the patient. So those are some of the concepts and the way we might approach testing that. Likewise, some of the concepts you might be looking at with that patient might involve palpatory physical diagnosis. In addition to observation, any good physician would do that. But obviously, as you know from your training, in the osteopathic physician is very likely to use palpatory touch in helping to make a diagnosis and sometimes even to help in certain conditions with treatment. So those principles and those competencies are likely to be a little bit more assessed in an exam called COMLEX as opposed to an exam designed for MD medical practice. I'll also point out that COMLEX USA is a primary care-oriented general type of an assessment. It's designed for undifferentiated a practice of osteopathic medicine, such to say that content level that's at the subspecialty or specialty level, like gastroenterology, would be kind of brought down to the primary care presentation base of you know somebody presenting to a general internist's office or a pediatrician's office or a, a family physician's office or the emergency room with acute abdominal pain that all might fall under broadly under your specialty. I don't know, John, I'm getting a little older and maybe a little silly, but I like to take tests. And that sounds like a test I would like to take. That sounds like a fun (laughs) test. Now, a question specifically going into the palpatory skills and the osteopathic portion of the exam. I know different schools maybe teach things differently. And maybe there are some schools that have a stricter osteopathic focus. My question on that is, Do you think there are certain comms that have an advantage on OMM sections of the exam over other comms? And are there variations in techniques that maybe make the questions a little more challenging for students that went to different osteopathic schools? Well, Ian, I think it's probably safe to say that for lots of different different areas, including specialties and including basic science disciplines, there are probably approaches at different schools and also faculty at different schools that are stronger than at others. I, I, I would imagine most schools have strengths in some things and relative weaknesses in, in other areas. The area of OMM and OPP often, uh, often brings this type of question. And I believe that probably stems from a time, even perhaps when we were trained or before that, where there probably was a wider variation in the various comms. Now with the accreditation standards from the AOA COCA, it's called, that accredits the schools. And with advances in osteopathic medical education around the nation, a group called the ECOP, the Educational Council for Osteopathic Principles. This group aligns the the chairs or the OMM department leaders or course directors from all of the different schools together, where they talk about core curricular issues and they talk about standard approaches to different things. I believe there's a lot more homogeneity in the way the, the educational program is designed, both with 
from the lecture standpoint, lecture discussion, but also with the lab, the OMM lab standpoint. But certainly some of them spend more time and have probably stronger and deeper faculty and more time integrating osteopathic concepts and OMM into the curriculum and others probably don't. But I can assure you, and I do assure students because we get this question quite a bit, that there's no advantage because all of the test questions are written by an OPP specialist at one school, for example. Our national faculty, for example, in our department of OPP for the MBOME, we have a a national faculty department. We have, I believe, 85 individuals from across the country and across the comms and GME and private practice who comprise that department alone, contribute a lot of the test content. Also, review of test content before it even becomes an item that gets pre-tested in Comlex is reviewed by individuals from different geographies, different comms, and, and even different specialties to make sure that it isn't just, for example, the OMM department at, at NYITCOM, the way they say it is, and it's vif- different on the other coast. If it's different on the other coast and there's that much wide variation, that test item is going to fall off. It's, it's not going to pass our levels of scrutiny and review and ultimately would, would never count for a student's score. It won't survive kind of the pre-testing. So that national faculty and the processes we have in place don't make a perfect test. There's no such thing as a perfect test, but I think they create a sampling, which is the test, which is fair. And I think it's fair no matter where you go. But certainly I would think there are probably schools with the strongest anatomy departments and there are probably schools with the strongest physiology departments, and there's probably schools with the strongest OMM departments, for sure. I'm going to change gears, John, a little bit and talk about the ACGME merger and how the Comlex is affected or how students are affected with. My first question is, do all residency programs in the ACGME accept the Comlex? In the the most recent National Residency Matching Program Director Survey, which was just released this August, demonstrated the highest number of program directors reporting that they require and accept COMLEX for DOs, and it was 86%. That's the highest number ever in history across the more than 10,000 residency programs in the ACGME. That is additional evidence that there has never been more availability and more accessibility to residency programs for DO applicants ever in history. There has never been a better time to be a DO applying to ACGME programs because ACGME is now accrediting all the residency programs. There's never been more access. And that was further evidenced by the success rate, Ian, of the graduating class of 2020 that had a placement rate into ACGME residency programs of 99.29%, the graduating class of this spring unbelievable results. There were similar, very positive results in the specialty fellowship match program that the NRMP runs in March, 22% increase and about 1,300 DOs matched into those programs. And just recently, the internal medicine subspecialty fellowships, including in your specialty, had record numbers of DOs matching in these ACGME internal medicine subspecialty fellowships. So there's never been a better time for DO students albeit understanding that the single accreditation system for GME did create a lot of anxiety on the part of students who might have felt that would this new system put them in a disadvantage when they no longer had the somewhat so-called safety net of programs that were AOA accredited that only DOs could apply to. And thus far, 
This could not have worked out any better, I think, for DO students. It's a great time to be a DO applying to residencies. And again, the, the success of the class of 2020 just this past year helps to demonstrate that. John, I'm going to go back to my other comment. Now I want to take the test. I want to reapply for my residency because <laughs> that sounds great. We recently interviewed a program director from an internal medicine residency out of the Northwell system. His name is Kyle Katona. And he mentioned that he is able to use a computer program to compare the USMLE and Comlex scores. Can you talk to me a little bit about how that works? Is that difficult for program directors to find and use? Let me describe a little bit right now that the USMLE step one provides numerical scores as well as a pass fail. It's a three digit numerical score. Comlex likewise provides a three digit numerical score and pass fail. They are both standard scores and they're on a different score scale. And so therefore, comparability for those who are unfamiliar with either exam can be somewhat difficult. However, both exams provide percentile conversion tools. So if you're interested in what a 600 was in on level one last May, you can use the website, very simple, two steps. You have the percentile score and you can see, oh, that was a 75th percentile for the 8,000 DOs that took that exam that particular year, probably a pretty strong score, right? Whereas if you're using that to compare an MD student who took a USMLE and you see that their exam score was also, let's say in the 70th percentile, when you use their percentile conversion tool, then you know you have two applicants who are pretty similar in terms of demonstrating their foundational biomedical science and clinically related knowledge which is similar to what is tested in level one and and step one. The formulas that convert one score to another that I have seen, and some of them have been in the literature, for example, converting a level one of Comlex to a step one of USMLE have all demonstrated pretty significant flaws. We are actually working on a, a research paper right now with score concordance data that actually we believe might demonstrate a formula that has less well, that's closer and more valid. But I can tell you that we have published a number of times, including in the ACGME's journal, the Journal of Graduate Medical Education, score concordance work that shows about a 0.84, 0.85 statistical correlation between a level one of COMLEX and a step one of USMLE. So there's a strong association between performance on one or the other, even though they're different tests and they they sample in somewhat different ways and they're constructed in somewhat different ways. If all you're really interested is, it does this student, this applicant, have a decent fund of foundational biomedical science and applied clinical knowledge, let's say the level one, step one, comparing those percentiles from each score is probably a pretty valid way of going about that. That's super helpful, John. Thank you. My next question is, as far as licensure with the COMLEX in the United States, are there states that don't accept the COMLEX for licensure? Oh, no, Ian. Uh, for 20 years now or so, COMLEX has been accepted in all states for licensure. And in fact, it's required in a number of states for DOs to get a license. You won't, you won't get a license with taking any other licensing exam. So that has been a real success story. Again, back to the 1930s and 40s, and even closer to our time period, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there were states that didn't accept 
national licensing exams, including what became known as USMLE and for MDs and including what became known as COMLEX for DOs. But since 2004, Louisiana was the last state to accept COMLEX for DOs for licensure. And so now not only does COMLEX open up every door of every licensing board in every state and some territories and other, the District of Columbia, of course, but there's other jurisdictions that recognize COMLEX. Just recently in the Australia, Australian Medical Board, it's called the Medical Board of Australia, just granted COMLEX competent authority pathway for comprehensive medical licensure, they call it registration, in Australia, such that an American DO who trains with two years of GME training accredited by the ACGME or the AOA, who passes all of the COMLEX exams, including the level two PE and including the level three of COMLEX, the entire series, can now go to Australia and be recognized for registration for licensure for unrestricted medical practice in Australia. The first such competent medical authority granted in over 15 years by the Medical Board of Australia, and that's your MBOME, your COMLEX. So very, very exciting news. That's really cool. So if I want to do colonoscopies in Australia now, I would be able to do that. The last time I talked with a couple of my friends in Australia on an international board that I'm on where they had not had a COVID-19 case in over 25 days straight. Of course, they're on an island and they can protect who comes in and who goes out, but it was looking pretty attractive, right? On those (laughs) dark days of COVID. It's a good pitch. John, you know, we're talking a little bit about the USMLE and we recently had president of the, of the FSMB on our podcast, Hank Chowdhury, who's also DO, just interesting. What is the relationship between the MBOME and the FSMB? Well, the FSMB is the Federation of State Medical Boards. So that's kind of the group that aligns or unites all of the different licensing authorities. And we have an excellent relationship with the Federation. They have official policy that the evidence for the validity of Comlex USA for osteopathic physician licensure is exemplary. At their annual meeting each year, we're often invited to give an overall update for all of the state medical and osteopathic medical licensing board about Comlex, usually oftentimes on a panel with the USMLE program, for example. We co-published with the Federation of State Medical Boards researchers in academic medicine, a journal that a lot of deans read. It's kind of a very prestigious journal in medical education. That's uh, the journal of the American Association of Medical Colleges. And we published a predictive validity article about Comlex together with the Federation of State Medical Boards just this June. It was a really a landmark article in, it actually demonstrated that Comlex performance was highly associated with eventual performance in practice, such that the higher your COMLEX score, the lower your likelihood of having a state disciplinary board action, like losing your license or having your license revoked due to some type of a, you know, a practice uh, issue. This was a very strong article published in a very prestigious journal, and we co-published it with the Federation of State Medical Boards. So a great relationship with the FSMB. Dr. Hank Chaudhry is their president and chief executive. Their board of directors also works very closely with members of our governance, our board of directors, and we share many things in common, including very similar missions, protecting the public through assessment. And of course, the federation aligning all of the licensing boards around the country to make sure that patients 
feel protected and are protected by these boards granting licenses to doctors who have demonstrated their minimal competency for the the practice that they're entering. That's amazing. So, John, I'm going to, again, switch gears a little bit and ask you a few controversial questions. Some things that we've spoken to a lot of our DO students that are helping us with the podcast and working on it with us. And there are some burning questions about the Comlex that I think that you are certainly the best person to ask. And the first one is many students feel that in order to be a strong candidate for a competitive residency specialty, such as orthopedics or dermatology, that they really need to take the USMLE to be competitive with allopathic students. What do you think of that idea or statement? Well, obviously, the more competitive a residency program, to me, that means there's a higher number of applicants and a smaller number of spots. So there's more people who are trying to distinguish themselves for that smaller numbers of of spots. In order to distinguish yourself, there are a number of ways to do so. Some people will publish papers, join professional organizations, get mentors and do a lot of networking, have good grades if your school gives those or a good high class rank if your school reports that and demonstrate lots of other things, including interest in that particular field as as it gets competitive. As of now, the USMLE exam gives numerical scores for its step one, but they are moving away from that come January of 2022. So just a little over a year from now, there will be no way to distinguish yourself with a high USMLE step one score after January of next year, 2022, because they won't be providing those scores. The Comlex, interestingly enough, has been looking at this for about 10 years, recognizing that this use by residency program directors of determining that we're only going to interview people with the super highest scores was probably an overuse of what those score scales and what those scores were created for. They're licensure exams. They're really minimal competency. And the score scales aren't really designed to discriminate that level. And was probably keeping out or excluding a number of people, you mentioned orthopedic surgery, who might be great orthopedic surgeons, but maybe they just weren't getting uh, certain high scores in their level one or in their step one if they're, if they're an MD student. So the NBOME has been studying this issue of numerical scores, and we're actually on the verge of making an announcement on where we're going. I'm not at liberty to, to share that quite, quite yet, but that announcement is coming very, very soon. So when you ask, well, would I advise a DO student who's applying to a super competitive situation to try to distinguish themselves in any way possible, they might need to in certain types of circumstances. There's a large number of applicants for a small number of spots. Maybe they need to do really well in their school. Maybe they need to be involved with publishing papers or joining professional networks in that that specialty. Maybe they need to take Comlex and make sure you do well. Maybe they do need to take one step of USMLE, at least in this interim period as the single accreditation system continues to roll out and provided that there are scores available to help distinguish themselves. But for the vast majority of DOs applying into residencies, I mentioned earlier the 86% of ACGME program directors accepting, requiring, and using Comlex for DO applicants, it is not a necessary step. And we believe as the single accreditation system you called it the merger, but technically we call it the single GME accreditation system. As that continues to roll out, 
more and more DOs will recognize that taking additional exams for purposes other than which they were created is not necessary to establish credibility. Most program directors in ACGME programs know about DO applicants, and most residency program directors know about Comlex USA and know how to actually use it. And is there a subset of them that do not? Sure, there are. There's also a subset of program directors that only interview DOs as well as part of that uh, single system. So that answers my question perfectly. I think there's no answer on a case-by-case basis. It's just a general opinion. And I think your opinion is appreciated. And we, we always advise students to work with an advisor and work with evidence-based resources and this and not go with sometimes the paranoia that comes from resources such as studentdoctor.net and these other avenues that clearly disseminate lots of misinformation for whatever reason. And that's why I was so thrilled to hear about your podcast and the, that this student kind of directed program, which is a real in earnest effort to share accurate information and to share career paths and other types of things with DO students. It's very, very exciting because I think it helps in professional identity formation for us to have accurate information and not self-deprecate as we sometimes do as a profession, because we sometimes feel like we're in a minority position or a position of disadvantage when kind of like David and Goliath, sometimes that position is actually a strength. And we just have to kind of realize that. That's a a wonderful way in my mind of thinking about it. I'm a huge Malcolm Gladwell fan, John, and his book, David and Goliath, definitely talks about looking at things differently, that that David might not be the little guy. He may just be the guy that takes a different approach. So I agree with you 100%. My follow-up question, as you mentioned, is sort of on the same lines, but I think the question is a little bit different. With the ACGME merger, many DO students that we've spoken to are concerned that residencies that were previously, quote-unquote, allopathic or MD residencies looked very strongly at the actual percentile on boards. And if a DO student did very well on one of those exams, they felt that it allowed them an increased competitiveness in some of those programs. So I guess the question is, as, and again, you haven't commented on what the Comlex is going to do, but as some of these exams do move towards a pass-fail and away from a numerical grade, Many students feel that this may put them at a disadvantage for those competitive programs, assuming they would have gotten a very high score. How do you feel about that concern? I certainly understand the anxieties of change, but even the language that we use sometimes, Ian, frames things in in one way or another, kind of along the lines of Malcolm Gladwell and David and Goliath. For example, we refer to certain programs sometimes as MD residencies. Well, there really are no such thing as MD residencies now in the single accreditation system. All residencies are ACGME accredited and program directors are advised to accept kind of the best candidates, whether they be from DO granting schools, MD granting schools, international medical schools with various degrees, MD or MBBS, or there's various uh, medical degrees kind of related there. If this elimination of numerical scores in the USMLE world and potentially in, in other situations helps to increase the holistic view that residency program directors use in looking at all applicants and trying to find those who are likely to be most successful in their program and also most happy 
in their program, which probably contributes to being successful in the program, then tremendous and kudos. And that will be a, that would be a wonderful scenario because what has happened in the last five to 10 years in particular, with the increasing number of DO and MD graduates and international graduates applying to residencies, is that there has been a tremendous overuse or misuse of one single day numerical score, whether that be Comlex or USMLE. And this move back to a pass-fail should hopefully broaden the holistic view. And I believe, what do residency program directors want in an applicant? Well, I've shared this with student groups for years, and I've shared it with program director groups, and I've said, please challenge me on this if you disagree. And I still do spend one half day a week in at a residency program. So I'm still connected with seeing patients and working with residency faculty and such. And I ask them, what are you most looking for in a resident? And almost always what they say is somebody who is competent, but somebody who is caring, somebody who is a team player, somebody who is professional, somebody you know who has a strong work ethic, somebody who has good communication skills, many things that aren't necessarily predicted by step one of Comlex or a step one of USMLE and using particularly that score as the be all and end all of who to interview into a residency program is probably not not the best tool. Once you get into that interview, again, most program directors and their faculty are looking holistically at who do I see as really being successful and happy in, in the program? And it would make up a real, hopefully kind of diverse and wonderful group of residents that we would bring on in and be successful. I think a lot of program directors use those licensing exam scores as a screening because they don't want to bring somebody into a program who's going to be unsuccessful, basically because they can't pass tests like board certification tests, which are often used as outcome measures of a success of a residency program. Now, the ACGME has downplayed the importance of that particular marker in accreditation. It used to be, you know, higher percentages needed to pass board certification on the first time in order to maintain accreditation. And they've, they've really paid some attention to that impact. But uh, ultimately, I think the move to pass fail for USMLE and should Comlex decide and announce to kind of move similarly will shift away the emphasis of that one day numerical score to more of a, okay, if they pass, what are the other markers and other indicators of both their academic ability, their other competencies, their professionalism, and the other things that communication skills that we care about. And they may have to work a little harder to screen who are the best people to interview for their program, who are the people who they think would would really be successful and happy in the program. But I do think they'll figure it out. And I think DO students who are strong and MD students who are strong and international graduates who are strong will find ways to continue to differentiate themselves as being folks who are worth interviewing. And then once you get into the interview, hopefully worth putting on the rank list. And once you get on the rank list and you rank them high and you play your cards right, you're probably going to match like the 99.29% of DO students in last year's class did. So I envision an even better world with some of these changes moving forward. Okay, John, that's a, that's a great answer. Again, much appreciated. I have two more questions. One, I'm going to start with my question. You know, I always hide behind, this is the student's question, and I have one last student question. So my question, as far as that goes, I have never reviewed the full ACGME policy, but I'm sure 
that there are policies from the ECGME saying that there can't be discrimination against people if they're purple, if they're green, if they're old, if they're young. But my question for you is, is there an ACGME policy that says that DOs can't be discriminated against for only taking the COMLEX for residency? And if there is not such a policy, should there be? Thank you for that question. The ACGME has taken a strong stance in equity, inclusion, diversity, and of course, non-discrimination. And that's admirable. They do not have requirements for that are specific to licensure exams, however. Uh, other than in the transitional year, you have to, under non-COVID circumstances, you have to take the level three or step three by the end of your first year of residency. That's been modified or temporarily taken away during the COVID time because it's been harder to get access to certain tests and such. But other than that, ACGM has always said that DOs and COMLEX are part of the osteopathic medical education and licensure pathway, and it is recognized. USMLE is part of the licensure pathway for MDs and is recognized, but they have been reticent to set a requirement specifically about that. However, following organizations all do have official policy that support equivalent use of these exams, COMLEX for DOs, USMLE for MDs. And they include the Federation of State Medical Boards who had official policy about the validity and have written letters to residency program directors over the years supporting complex, equivalent complex use. The AMA, the American Medical Association, has official policy from its House of Delegates about two years ago that complex and USMLE should be used equivalently by program directors. And to not do so would be discriminatory against DO applicants. A remarkable effort in solidarity for D, with MD students and DO students standing up together in support of that initiative. And of course, the AOA, the uh, ACOM, and a number of other organizations that have these official policies supporting that equivalent use. So I think your idea is a great one. And I do think we have, uh, we have certainly talked with ACGME officials to help program directors to understand. And we've certainly done a lot of networking, the MBOME, with program directors and program directors associations over the years to help them to understand. And in fact, we've been very, very well received by program directors in the quote ACGME world with you know, medical specialties and such who have been very interested in learning more about DO candidates as well as learning more about COMLEX and, and how to use it, including the, the level two PE exam and such. So we're on a really good trajectory as the single accreditation system just really hit its fifth maturation year this past year. And it will be interesting to see how things go over the next five years, especially with the USMLE change eliminating numerical scores. I would think no DO candidate would ever feel the need to take a USMLE step one, since they will no longer you know, be able to distinguish themselves with a numerical score in any way in the very near future. I think that's a very interesting point. As the scores go away, that that question sort of goes away. John, my last question on test, and then I'd like to spend some time speaking about you. From the students, I understand that there has been a lot of anxiety over the past year as far as medical education and the setting of the pandemic. One of the issues that a lot of students have, have brought up is the inability to access places to take the level two PE exam and, and what that means for them both this year and 
getting licensed and going out into residency and potentially needing to take it during residency. Can you talk a little bit about the MBOME's uh, position and how they came to that position when it comes to that issue? Absolutely. Certainly, it's important for you to hear that the MBOME has tremendous connections with student leaders and student individuals, both on, we have a board committee called Liaison Committee that has student members. We have multiple Multiple uh, outreach initiatives with the SOMA, the Student Osteopathic Medical Association, and the COSGP, the Council of Osteopathic Student Government Presidents. We get regular input from those organizations. And of course, we live in the same world that you do with, you know, Twitter and social media and lots of ways to get information. We also meet with deans very regularly and have many deans on our board of directors as well as on our national faculty. So we, we have our finger on the pulse pretty good of the students. And let me tell you, we were dying a thousand deaths along with our students back in April and May when Prometric test centers were closed and we couldn't deliver any licensing exams for a period of time due to the pandemic. But then again, you know, you live in New York. I mean, you know, you know what it was like. And for those of us who also on the front line of patient care and whatever, we all recognize it was a pandemic, but it happened to be very bad timing for the students both DO and MD, because it was right around the time, May and June and July, when most of them take their computer-based licensure exams, and they had delays, and they had scheduling snafus by Prometric test centers, and it was was a nightmare, and we really, we felt for them. We understood how anxiety-provoking that was, and it was regrettable the way many of them were rescheduled multiple times, and it created chaos, and we, we walked with them together. We worked with them together. We worked with the schools together to find them places to test, and I'm here to tell you, we've actually tested about 23,000 Comlex candidates since May, since we restarted, and with all that testing in about 300 Prometric test centers, including two satellites we put up at two university-based comms, We had zero cases of COVID-19 transmission. We made the changes to make the test safe, to make the testing experience safe, and that was a real success in the the end. The trickier one, though, is this level 2 PE that you mentioned. That's the the performance evaluation. It's a standardized patient-based clinical skills exam, so it's a hands-on exam where students travel to either one of our national centers for clinical skills testing in Philadelphia, a suburb called Conshohocken or in Chicago, near O'Hare Airport. And that was much trickier because it involves bringing individuals in. And while we had protocols set up with our consultants from Johns Hopkins and others to make sure that the exam was as safe as possible, there was the traveling to the center that was creating a lot of angst on the part of students. Now, of course, we had just as many students anxious to say, we want to take the test and we want to get to the exam center and we want to get this requirement done with so we can graduate and we can move on. So the accreditor of DO schools is called the COCA. And COCA made a decision back in June, June 5th, in fact, of this summer to say, since the Comlex USA level two PE exam is suspended because of COVID and we're not likely to be restarting in the very near future, we're going to temporarily suspend or modify the graduation requirement so that students do not need to take this exam in order to get the DO degree or graduate like they normally would in last year's class and other classes have had to do. This was a big decision for COCA, but it was one that the NBOME enthusiastically supported because we knew that even if we were getting the testing up in November, there would be some students who would struggle to get a test site or a date and be able to take it that fit into their schedule. 
And we didn't want the students to have this additional anxiety that, well, if they don't take the exam and pass it, they wouldn't graduate. They might only get one attempt, et cetera. That was needless anxiety that we thought we should enthusiastically support, and we did so. Unfortunately, Ian, there was a rampant amount of misinformation and disinformation. Some of it put out there on social media by people who should have known that they were putting out bad information. And it created such an amount of anxiety on the part of DO students that it was it was extremely unfortunate. Our most recent announcement in October, suspending the exam all the way until April, certainly made it clear that even though 25% of the graduating class of 2021 has already taken and passed the level two PE exam this year, that means 75% of them have not, about 5,000 or so students. And for those students, if we are able to bring the exam up and uh, help to ensure that it's safe and a safe testing experience, that it will not be able to test likely all 5,000 of them before graduation, which means some and quite a number of them might either choose to or be required to take it in their first year of residency. We've had many older DOs approach us and say, oh, you mean they're going to have to leave their hospital and and take a licensing exam? Well, even though the the word resident was named because you used to actually live in the hospital, uh, these days there have been some, some changes, some work rules and other things that mean you actually do get to leave the hospital on occasion when you're a first year resident. And while it certainly might be an inconvenience for a first year resident to take the level two PE exam at some point in their first year, let's say, or early in their second year of residency in order to stay right on time with things. If that's when they feel safe to test and that's when they can access the exam and that's when they can demonstrate their competencies and then go on and get a license anywhere, it's the sacrifice certainly that, again, thanks to COVID, that they're likely to to need to, to have to do. Should they do that, and even if they take this exam as an intern, let's say a first year resident, and then take their level three within six to 12 months of that and and pass that exam, by the end of their second year of residency, they'll still be able to go for an unrestricted license in any state, of course, unless the state requires more than two years of GME, in order to increase the capacity so that more students or recent graduates could take the exam even sooner than under normal circumstances. Not only are we doing everything we can to increase the number of test spots opening in our Philadelphia and our Chicago site, but we're actually likely to be uh, opening a satellite test center for level two PE out on the West Coast near Fresno, California. And that would be open from approximately May till October of next year and would provide a considerable number of additional test spots. And those a little bit closer for some on the West Coast would help reduce some of the quote backlog of the 5,000 or so DO students in the class of 2021, and then the following class that will also be then interested in taking their test. But prioritization will continue to be for the class of 2021 until we can make up that backlog and then offer that exam. Is it an inconvenience? Yes. Is it anxiety provoking? Yes. But at least DO students should know it's not going to prevent them from graduating. It's not going to prevent them from moving along on their pathway. We certainly empathize with that condition. We didn't cause COVID. You didn't cause COVID. They didn't cause COVID. COVID has created all kinds of chaos for all of us. But we, the NBOME, has worked very hard with the program director, the residency program director community, to let them know that students should not be held back or 
they should have no concern about interviewing students who've not taken the level two PE exam because of the pandemic. Remember that DO students, many have not taken the level two PE and they're applying to residencies. Many MD students have not taken the clinical skills exam that USMLE has in its series, the Step 2 CS, which has also been suspended since March. So there's a pretty level playing field there with the vast majority of applicants in this year's residency pool not having a national standardized clinical skills testing at the time that they're applying and interviewing for residency. So John, I think my interpretation of everything that you just said is, and I just want you to correct me if I'm wrong, that the MBOME's job is to make sure that osteopathic physicians have competency before they go out into practice, that the situation of the pandemic is unfortunate and certainly has delayed the test, but it doesn't mean that the test is not needed to prove competence and that the MBOME needs to continue to use that test to make sure the doctors are going to treat patients and that the osteopathic profession is producing excellent doctors that are competent as it always has, and they will do their best in the future to make sure that all osteopathic students have access to the exam in the best way that they can. In this well said. Two, two additional points I might just make. One is it's also our responsibility to make sure that the testing is safe as it can be, just like the computer-based testing that I mentioned, no COVID cases. And we're doing everything we can to make sure when that examination does relaunch, that it is in fact a safe testing experience to do so. There was a lot of misinformation about that and quarantines and trial and other stuff that MBOME didn't care or wasn't concerned about the safety of our students. And of course, that couldn't be the the furthest thing from the truth. But uh, also the licensure community, the state licensing community is still in the osteopathic world, very, very dependent upon national clinical skills testing. It's a really important exam for licensing boards to give DO a license. And in fact, in some similar to what you said, Ian, the testing has to test what you value and it has to test the competencies that are critical to providing safe and effective osteopathic medical care. This test, the level two PE, tests doctor-patient communication skills, palpatory physical diagnosis, OMT and OMM, which are what the profession values and what the patients look for when they seek care from an osteopathic physician. So demonstrating those fundamental competencies, as you said so well, is a critical professional responsibility that you have as a rising osteopathic medical student and an applicant to get a license. It's back to what we talked about in the very beginning, which is self-regulation, meaning that the profession self-regulates and sets the standards and that you as a professional who take various oaths along these lines Say, I'll demonstrate, I'll, I'll do what I need to to demonstrate that I have those competencies so that I can earn the trust of patients. And the trust is in that piece of paper that's called the license to practice. John, thank you so much for answering all of my questions. I am very educated now in Comlex USA and MBOME. So I think everything that I wanted answered and that our group wanted answered, you've done an amazing job answering for me. I want to hear a little bit about how the president of the MBOME got to where he is. And our podcast is mainly to document the osteopathic physician journey. So can you start by telling me where you grew up, where you went to college, and when you decided you wanted to be a doctor? Absolutely. I grew up in the Pennsylvania, 
uh, not too far from Philadelphia, and uh, grew up the oldest of eight children. Interestingly enough, two of them also became osteopathic physicians, and two of them married osteopathic physicians. So we've got in-laws, outlaws, we've got DOs all over the place uh, on a normal year with Thanksgiving or Christmas. Of course, in this year, we'll be doing a little bit more uh, Zoom connection, but kind of a big family. And being the oldest of a big family, if anybody can relate to that, you're always taking care of individuals and providing care. Certainly had, I had dreams of being a physician from very early years, age 10, 12, 14, thinking of being interested in some of the sciences and anatomy and being enamored by, you know, the healthcare providers that I interacted with. But it was really in high school when in a, as a leader in the future physicians club of our high school, uh, we had a biology teacher who was there for two years, who was the son of an osteopathic physician, who was himself going on to osteopathic medical school that next year. And he also worked at a hospital. So he took those interested like myself on round, like around the hospital. He was a phlebotomist. So he would take us and show us some of the things in the lab and other things. And then he'd say, oh, by the way, uh, you know, lay down on the table. Let me show you what, what I can do. And I was enamored. And he would talk to me as he was treating me about you know, body, mind, and spirit, and about, you know, treating each patient as a person, but not a constellation of biochemical particles and interactions there, but really body, mind, and spirit, the social determinants of health and what what does that. I was sold, and so much so that when I went to LaSalle University uh, in Philadelphia, which was a real pre-med mecca at the time, and had a wonderful biology pre-med training there, and it became time to, to apply Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine was nearby. I applied to about five DO schools and two MD granting schools. Got interviews at, I think, all but one of the uh, of the seven schools or so I applied. But PCOM, Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, was my first choice, having visited it with my mentor and friend there, and was lucky enough to have been accepted relatively early on. And it interviewed at, at a few of the other schools, but wound up choosing my path. And boy, was it a wonderful path to go through. Interestingly enough, that then took me, of course, into residency training. And I was one of those medical students who loved every clinical rotation I did. So I was going to be an obstetrician for six weeks, then I was going to be a pediatrician for six weeks, and I was going to be an internist for six weeks, you know, as, as you did each clinical rotation. And that ultimately led me to choosing family medicine and, and kind of a primary care training path. And when it came time to do my residency, after doing a rotating internship, we still had the ability to do a one-year rotating internship at that time. I then applied to residencies and was accepted or matched into the family medicine residency at the very hospital in that I was born in, okay. Chestnut Hill Hospital, uh, just outside in the outskirts of, of Philadelphia. So I felt for the, the whole several years that I was there, like I had been there before. And sure enough, I had been there before. I was born in, the, in that hospital. And my dream was to throw a shingle in that community and be a family doc and practice for 30 or 40 years and, and retire. And I lived that dream. I right out of residency, I threw a shingle. My father helped me to put it up. Literally one of the old things, I started my own independent practice back at the time, early, early 1990s, took care of little babies, including in the nursery, hospital care, ICU, and all the way up back in the good old days where primary care docs went into the hospital each day and made house calls and became, you know, really a, a part of that community just on the outskirts of Philadelphia. But I was only 
in practice about three three, three to six months when one of my mentors and a dean then at, at the osteopathic medical school that I graduated with, Dr. Dan Wisely, called me up and said, you know, you really ought to you know, get back in, in medical education. You ought to, you know, come back and be a teacher. You're a born teacher. You ought to, you know, be involved with that. And uh, so I did spend some time part-time in the practice and part-time doing some teaching, which was not too far away. And during that time, actually went back at night and got a master's in, in education and adult education back at LaSalle University, my uh, original alma mater, and learned a lot about assessment and about teaching and learning and about pedagogy. And that kind of skyrocketed me towards moving a little bit more into the academic part of the career, but continuing all the while, at least 50% of the time in active clinical practice. And despite having gone into some different roles, like being a dean up at the University of New England College of Osteopathic Medicine and being a pre-doc director at Georgetown University School of Medicine and a number of different roles, all the while I've always had a good amount of my time in direct patient care, seeing patients and teaching at the bedside, if you will. And even now, as president of NBOME, which I've been in now for starting my 12th year, I still am involved in patient care, still involved in the clinical delivery and graduate medical education side of the house. And that kind of keeps me grounded into, it's all about the patients. It's all about the public. And you got to always remember that this is about somebody who puts their trust in you to take care of their family member or to take care of themselves and earning that trust and also continuing to earn that trust is a really important element of what we do. John, I think it's amazing that you run this organization, that you're president of the MBOME and that you don't give up your ties to patient care. I just, I think that's very difficult to do, but I think that if I could choose a leader of an organization who's a physician, the fact that that physician is still practicing just makes would make me proud to have that physician as the leader. So I, I kudos to you for still practicing. That has to be hard though. Well it's not it's not all selfless. As you know, Ian, as a practicing gastroenterologist, the rewards that you get, the intrinsic rewards that you get from being able to help a person at a time of need and being able to just be a good human being and just listen to them and just recognize them, recognize the emotions or the concerns or the anxieties and reassure them and or deliver the news empathically and is a tremendous reward. And it's a real intrinsic reward in what we do. So I can tell you, I leave on Wednesdays after doing that, feeling fulfilled and feeling rewarded and feeling rejuvenated to go back into the next day, which might be 10, 12, 14 hours of in this case, Zoom meetings in a normal situation, traveling and airplanes to meetings, to professional meetings and those types of things. So certainly for the students who are listening to the podcast, don't ever lose sight on the fact that it's all about the patient and it's in serving patients in a servant leadership type of a role as their physician and their partner and serving those patients that you're going to receive many times over vast rewards. So do always keep that in mind. John, I know your time is valuable. You're obviously very busy. You're running this organization. You're taking care of patients. And you gave us over an hour of your time to explain some of the questions that students have about the MBOME. Again, thank you very much for for giving us your time tonight. Thank you very much, Ian. And best uh, to you and to all the students listening for a, a very healthy, safe holiday season and start to hopefully a very healthy and successful and happy uh, new year. This concludes our episode of Do or Do Not. 
Send all inquiries, comments, suggestions, and even let us know if there is someone you want us to interview to do or do not podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at do or do not podcast for updates. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your classmates and administration. We have plenty of more interviews lined up and we're excited to share them with you. This is Tian Yu Shea. Thank you guys so much for listening to Do or Do Not.